If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the March 2nd, 2020 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine. The world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, now including the queer and intersex communities in our mission statement and proudly promoting our allies. Hello, I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And I'm Chloe Corcoran. Tonight, Steve Pride sits down with iconic ballet dancer, choreographer, and filmmaker Wakefield Poole. And in Storytellers... I chat up out gay actor Kevin Spiritus about his multi-Emmy Award winning LGBT digital drama series, After Forever. But first, The Honest Tea. Our opening headline this week for Honest Tea is LGBTQ voter turnout imperative. This is from the LosAngelesBlade.com, February 26, 2020, by Brody Levesque and John Paul King. Tuesday, March 3rd, 2020, is Super Tuesday for Democratic presidential candidates in California's 415 delegates is the biggest prize headed into what may become a brokered convention this coming July in Wisconsin. And that would be the first time we've had a brokered convention for the Democrats since, I think, 1952. Now, the LGBT community has much at stake, given President Trump's extensive and deplorable anti-LGBTQ record. The high percentage of LGBTQ adults not registered to vote has also raised grave concerns for both the presidential race and down-ballot races, especially in critical congressional districts. Yes, it's at about 21% of LGBTQ individuals are not registered to vote. And many of those that are registered to vote aren't voting. They are not participating in the electoral process. Now, compare that 21% to 17% for non-LGBTQ voters that they are not registered, the percentage in our community is higher. So if if 21% of our community is not voting because they're not registered, and then who knows what the percentage is, doesn't really indicate what that percentage is of those who are registered but who don't vote. Right. So that could be as much as maybe half in total, perhaps. So that that's a problem. That's a problem, especially with some of the things coming down the pipe that we're looking at as far as legislation we really need to make ourselves heard. And we're seeing this with anti-trans bills all across the country, which we've talked about in the past, too. Right. Now, Zeke Stokes is GLAD's senior advisor for the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation's 2020 voter engagement campaign. He reminds us that the 2016 presidential vote outcome in a number of states was very close, with Trump carrying the state of Michigan by about only 10,000 votes. Now, if you presume that there are so many people who aren't registered to vote or aren't participating, you could very quickly do the math 
and see how if we could engage those voters and make sure that they get to the polls, that our LGBTQ community has the ability to actually decide important elections, Stokes says. And it's important that we have a hand in deciding those elections because lack of visibility, lack of representation leads to people being emboldened in moving against us. And that's something that we saw in Puerto Rico this week. Absolutely. This is coming from TheAdvocate.com by Trudy Ring, February 28th, 2020. The headline reads as such. Here it is. Let me just pull that up. Hours after restroom incident, trans woman murdered in Puerto Rico. Yes, a homeless transgender woman was shot to death in Puerto Rico early Monday, just 12 hours after she was reported to police for using a women's restroom at McDonald's. Alexa Negron Luciano, also known as Nulisa Luciano Ruiz and Alexa Ruiz, was killed in the town of Toa Baja, NBC News reports. A video purporting to show the fatal attack was uploaded to YouTube. Voices can be heard saying, we're going to shoot you up. And you bet I am going to go and shoot him, followed by the sound of at least 10 shots being fired. Now, this story by Trudy Ring also tells us that her death came after someone had posted photos on social media of her being questioned by police about her use of the women's restroom, the New York Times reports. She was accused of peeking at another woman in the facility. Accused. Accused. Not unlike a a very famous case way back when in the very beginnings of the uh, civil rights movement where a young teenage African-American boy was accused of looking at a white woman in a grocery store. Accusations are powerful, and we Mm -hmm. know the outcomes of these stories. Now, police have confirmed that Ruiz's death Tuesday, uh, police confirmed Ruiz's death Tuesday, and said that they had been informed that four teenagers may have been involved in the crime, according to NBC. At least one suspect has been arrested, Univision reports. It's important to note that the Puerto Rico governor, Wanda Vasquez, she was previously the territory's top prosecutor, said this should be investigated as a hate crime. And more importantly, she said this is violence against women without a doubt, reaffirming the gender identity of the of Alexa. Well, absolutely. And, and Puerto Rican LGBTQ activist Pedro Julio Serrano it called on police and prosecutors to treat the murder as a hate crime. The video shows it was motivated by intolerance, he wrote on his website. He said the intolerance is fomented largely by conservative Christians. We must denounce the hate speech of the fundamentalist groups that have promoted a climate where they prosecute and persecute a trans person for the mere fact of using a bathroom, he wrote. Enough. Enough. That's it. This is a horrifying crime, and we can see that... When we don't have, again, I keep going back, visibility and representation, people feel emboldened to do whatever they want to do to move against us. And we can see that in legislation as well, because our politicians have not always helped us out. But speaking of politicians, before we go into our next feature, we just want to make note that we did have a politician speak out and speak up for uh, for Alexa, uh, who was who was murdered in Puerto Rico. Democratic presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren, who has often called attention to violence against trans people, tweeted about the crime. She said, I'm heartsick for Alexa and her loved ones. This epidemic keeps growing. We must use every tool we have to end it and protect trans women of color. All trans women, but particularly trans women of color. Yes, trans women of color are disproportionately affected by this violence. And it's nice to see a politician sticking up for this and making plans to enact legislation to help us because that hasn't always been the case. And women empowering other women. Yes. I think it's so important. So, uh, and speaking of empowering women and powerful women, our next uh, story features who? 
Well, that's going to go to our friend Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She, the headline reads, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez channels Jesus Christ to make passionate argument about LGBT plus rights that's impossible to argue with. Uh, probably one of my favorite titles ever, uh, headlines ever, <laughs> channeling Jesus Christ. Right. Yes. Uh, New York politician Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, has invoked her Christian faith to make a passionate argument for LGBT plus rights. The Democrat ardently defended the rights of the LGBT plus community during a congressional committee hearing yesterday, calling out the bigotry of those who use Christianity to discriminate against marginalized groups. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said that Jesus would be maligned as a radical by today's Congress for his message of love and inclusion. She is quoted as saying, if Christ himself walked through these doors and said what he said thousands of years ago, that we should love our neighbor and our enemy, that we should welcome the stranger, fight for the least of us, that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into a kingdom of heaven, he would be maligned as a radical and rejected from these doors. Now, most of our audience who is listening, it's just like preaching to the choir. But as our executive producer, Steve Pride, reminds me, sometimes the choir needs rehearsal. Absolutely. Right? Now, the Committee on Oversight and Reform was holding a hearing on the ways in which Trump administration has tried to undermine LGBT, LGBT plus rights. In November 2019, researchers revealed that under the Trump administration, LGBT plus language, data, resource pages, and anti-discrimination information have been disappearing from government websites. So in her opening remarks to the committee, Jamie Raskin, who is the Democrat representative from Maryland, said, the Trump administration has been working zealously to turn the government into an instrument of hostility and opposition towards LGBTQ rights across the executive branch of government. Now, responding to the HuffPost story about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's comments, the White House accused Raskin and AOC of deliberately distorting the president's record and refusing to credit any action he's taken to protect and promote LGBTQ Americans. On a personal note, that is something I would love to see spelled out for me. Yeah, what are those? Give me examples. Of right. That. Don't just say he has. Tell me what. And, you know, the article ends with a wonderful little last sentence that kind of makes you go, hmm? Trump's recent actions related to the LGBT plus community have included randomly retweeting a pink news article about a gay Bollywood romance without explanation. Some things I'll never understand, Michael Taylor Gray. I, I, it's my Scooby-Doo moment. <laughs> Speaking of politicians, we're kind of with all these elections going on and the, this is a presidential election year and there's a lot going on. And we have Super Tuesday coming up, as we've already noted. Uh, Mayor Bloomberg is, of course, in the news as he's jumped into the race to, as for to his bid to be the Democrat uh, Democratic nominee for president. This is from The Washington Blade. From February 26, 2020, by Chris Johnson. The title of this article is, As Mayor, Bloomberg Sought Major Cuts to HIV and Homeless Youth Programs. Fans of Mike Bloomberg draw on his success cultivating a budget surplus as New York City mayor. But despite that prosperity, the 2020 presidential hopeful once sought major cuts to HIV AIDS and homeless youth programs used disproportionately by LGBTQ people and the city's residents of color. To this day, community advocates condemn Bloomberg's proposed cuts to HIV AIDS and homeless youth programs. 
One called the former's mayor record appalling and another who said he was never a friend of homeless people. One-time Bloomberg ally Christine Quinn, a lesbian and former speaker of the New York City Council, told the Washington Blade that the proposed cuts were hard for me to explain and indefensible. Yes, and and one of the uh, members on that city council at that time was current mayor Bill de Blasio. You know, and Quinn went on to say that obviously there were budgets and sometimes repeated budgets where the mayor did not include in his budget the important issues about beds for homeless and runaway youth and HIV programs and other youth services, Quinn said. And the council stood firm in the eight budgets that I did. And with the support of the youth committee chair, Lou Fiddler, and general welfare chair, now Mayor de Blasio, we successfully put that funding back every year. Now, this was his top issue as chair of the budget committee, a top issue, Quinn said. He was a budget negotiator and said he would lie in front of a bus before a budget was passed without this funding. I think that's very important that we have advocates like that. Uh, Agreed. Mm -hmm. Although the money was restored despite the cuts Bloomberg sought, Quinn said having to undo the former mayor's proposed reductions over and over again ultimately wasn't good for those programs. Quoted as saying, being on the defensive on this program, even in years where there was not a deficit, prevents us from having a strategic conversation about what we should be doing in the case of HIV prevention and or the lives of homeless and runaway LGBT youth, Quinn said. Yes, and, and think, you know, it's we, we need to be fair in terms of and fair and balanced, truly, unlike some news programs that we know. Uh, a Bloomberg campaign spokesman referred the blade to an annual report from the New York City Department of Health in 2014, which documents success in fighting the HIV epidemic within the system. Among the achievements were reductions in the deaths among people with HIV, a 50 percent reduction of new HIV diagnosis and keeping pr- a perinatal HIV infections at low levels. The report, on the other hand, also found HIV diagnosis rates continue to be strikingly high among black and Latino Hispanic men and women relative to other racial ethnic groups. And that's, uh, if you go to the CDC's website, the, uh, this, uh, the Centers for Disease, Disease Control and Prevention, you'll see that that's, nationally that's, that's true across the board, that are men and women of color in particular uh, more at risk. Yeah. And speaking of politicians and HIV, some might draw parallels to the vice president, Mike Pence, who oversaw Indiana's HIV outbreak as well as governor there. Well, maybe we can just uh, use uh, conversion therapy and just wish all that away. Let's hope that we mm-hmm. don't go back down that road. No, and we want to let's finish up with some really great news. I think this West Hollywood is doing what the city of Los Angeles is doing in conjunction with West Hollywood is a model for our seniors nationwide and I think throughout the world. This is an article from wehooville.com uh, by the staff of the <laughs> Los Angeles LGBT Center from Friday, February 28th, 2020. LA LGBT Center invites WeHo seniors to apply for affordable housing. The city of West Hollywood is getting the word out that applications for new affordable senior housing will be accepted by the Los Angeles LGBT Center Senior Services Program for the forthcoming McCadden Campus Senior Housing Site, which will offer 98 new affordable low-income units designed for people who are ages 62 and over. Yeah, the LGBT Center's McCadden Campus Senior Housing is anticipated to be completed in fall of 2020 and will feature studios and one-bedroom rentals. 
There will be fully accessible units for people with mobility, hearing, and or vision disabilities. And future residents will be welcomed into the LA LGBT Center's wide range of community programming, specializing in HIV-positive wellness, gender identity, and LGBT social and cultural support. And if you're in the Los Angeles area or if you're outside of the Los Angeles area and want to find out how these programs can maybe be mimicked where you live, for more information about programs and services for seniors in the city of West Hollywood, please contact the City of West Hollywood Social Services Division at 323-848-6510 or visit www.weho.org slash wehocares. And for more information about McCadden Campus Senior Housing, contact the Los Angeles LGBT Center Senior Services Program by calling 323-860-5830 or just go online to wehoville.com and look for this article. Fantastic news. And that's The Honest Tea. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this quick break. An eighth-cent postage stamp for Willa Cather. Coming up now on The Rainbow Minute. Credited as one of the most widely read female authors of the 20th century, Willa Cather achieved recognition for her novels, A Frontier Life on the Great Plains. In 1923, she was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for her book, One of Ours, written a year earlier. Cather was also honored by the U.S. Postal Service with an eight-cent commemorative stamp designed by Mark English. The stamp, part of the American Arts issue, contains a profile of Cather with a pioneer family in a covered wagon in the background. It was first issued on September 20th, 1973 in Cather's hometown of Red Cloud, Nebraska. Cather's most significant friendships were with women, most notably editor Edith Lewis, with whom she lived for 39 years until Cather's death in 1947. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Soda Naboule, in Philadelphia. Hello, I'm Randall Kleiser, director of Grease, Blue Lagoon, White Fang, and It's My Party. And you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And I'm Chloe Corcoran. Wakefield Poole was an American dancer, choreographer, theatrical director, and pioneering film director in the gay pornography industry in the 1970s and 1980s. He was also a friend of Harvey Milk and the Zelig of the gay movement. Steve Pride reports. Two years after Stonewall, a Broadway choreographer shot a 16-millimeter film on Fire Island. It featured hardcore gay sex scenes, yet played at a legitimate theater, garnered mainstream media coverage, and attracted a celebrity crowd. Was Boys in the Sand a dirty movie? Groundbreaking indie cinema, or one of the greatest moments of gay visibility ever? Well, that depends on who you ask. I'm Wakefield Poole. Let's start at the very beginning. I wanted more than anything to be a ballet dancer. And when I got into the ballet roots, I accomplished my goal and was disappointed in the results of being in the company. It was not what I expected it to be. Touring, doing one-night stands for 10 months, even though I loved being in the company. But it's that way almost with everything I did. I would go so far, and I wasn't unsuccessful in anything that I accomplished. 
Even if you'd never done Boys in the Sand or any of the films, you had a fascinating life just based on New York and the dance and Broadway. I was lucky enough when I started my Broadway career that I worked with the brilliant, brilliant geniuses in that venue. Richard Rogers, Noel Coward, Stephen Sondheim, Jerry Bach and Sheldon Harnick, Arthur Lawrence, Jerome Robbins. I worked with them in one show or another. I think I was the only child on my block who had the cast album of No Strings. Yeah. I directed the London Company of No Strings with Diane Carroll. I was very lucky to hit all these things. I went to Woodstock just by accident. I didn't know what it was going to be. So I bought four tickets to Woodstock and took my lover and two other friends and drove them up there. And we had a motel room in Monticello. And I packed a picnic lunch with wine and we left it in the car because they said it's only a mile up the road. It turned out to be 10 miles away from the car. We never went back for the food. So like everybody else, we were scrounging for, you know, Coca-Colas. And we had our drugs with us, of course. I always seem to be in the right place at the right time, so I have no complaints about my life in that respect. Tell me about meeting your lover, Peter. I met Peter at the baths. We had sex three times at the baths, and then the last time I said, you know, I live right around the corner. Do you want to come home and I'll fix breakfast? He did, and he never left. He had his own apartment, and he ended up closing that up and moving in with me. And we were together seven years. All my relationships seem to run anywhere from six to eight years. <laughs> Boys in the Sand was also born when you and Peter were in a bathhouse. I met somebody at the baths one night, and he met somebody. And then we went downstairs to the pool, and we all met there. And it was the night Bette Midler opened at the Continental Baths. And we're sitting out by the pool saying, who's that broad singing in there? You know, what's going on in there? And all these guys sitting in towels watching this girl perform. It's the first time they'd had a show there. And because we met that evening is the reason I made the movie. Uh, Tom and Michael invited Peter and I out to Fire Island to stay at their house for a weekend, and we never left. We stayed the whole season. And I had decided I wanted to experiment and see if I could make a pretty sex film. I wanted to do two people really making love, not just doing it to do a dirty movie. And that's what I did. I got my lover to do it. And so I had the film already. So I said, Peter, you know, let's get Dino, this guy who had been very friendly with us and wanted to do a threesome. I said, let's get Dino and see if he'll do it. And he did. And so we did the first segment of Boys in the Sand. And it turned out wonderfully. And uh, people saw it and said, gee, you know, it's so good. You ought to make a full-length feature out of it. So I went to my manager and I said, Marvin, I'm going to make the rest of it. And I said, since I made it all on my credit card anyway, and you paid for it, do you want to become my partner? And we'll split everything 50-50. And he did. And Marvin put his name on the movie, and I put my name on the movie, which was unheard of in that time. Not only that we were gay, but we made a porno movie. Marvin was a theatrical business manager and did taxes for some of the top people in the business. Joan Rivers and Eddie Valella, and he had hundreds of dancers and singers at Broadway that he did their taxes. So he was well-known, and uh, we decided we would do a movie, and we would do it like a real movie and treat it like a movie and give it the respect that it deserved because a movie is a movie. It takes the same effort to make a movie as a porno movie. It's the same process. So we did. We hired a press agent. We did press screenings. We did screenings in people's homes. Um, Robert L. Green did a bruncheon for us and invited all the top models in New York. 
And of course, they all talk. And they saw the movie, and they all chittered and chattered. And it was at Christmas time, and a lot of parties, and it just spread like wildfire. Did you hear what Wakefield Pool did? He made a movie. So that's what everyone was saying at all the Christmas parties. It was the talk. And it made it successful because the way we treated it and the way the film was, and it was respectful to the people who were performing in the film. And I told people, I will never put anything in a film that you would be embarrassed by. So I want you to do what you feel and pretend I'm not there. I wanted all the inconsistencies and the insecurities that we do when we have sex with someone that we don't know. And we feel around and we'll try this and see what the reception is and what the body language is to our exploration. And it's a play back and forth. And that's what's in the movie and that's what people get. And they say, it's so beautiful and it's so real. Well, it's so real because it was real. So It wasn't just gay guys in trench coats that went to see no. it. This was a thing. Tell me about that audience. Well, because of my theater reputation, Everybody in the theater and on Broadway knew who I was. I'd done eight Broadway shows, and I won the Gypsy Road one year, so that means that everybody knew who I was. That helped the crossover because a lot of girls, dancers, were curious, not only about seeing a gay film, but seeing what I had done with it. So that helped create, again, the atmosphere that I really had in mind when I did it, you could go and sit in a movie theater and not have purian interest, but your interest is to see the film. We even put the times in the New York Times of the showings, 12 o'clock, you know, 1.30, blah, blah. So to treat it like a real film and let people know when the film started so they wouldn't just come in in the middle because it is a trip from beginning to end. And it's a whole, even though they're three separate segments like loops, they're all connected in some esoteric way in my head, but it works. That's what helped with the crossover and the fact that we were interviewed in straight magazines and Variety did a whole article on Marvin and I saying amateurs bring in Bonanza. We were number 48 in the top 50 grossing films in the United States the week we opened. That was unheard of. We were competing with XYZ with Elizabeth Taylor and a lot of big movies, and we were number 48 and stayed on the list for several weeks, like six or eight weeks. And, and your star really didn't hurt. He was very all-American. I remember I used to have, and maybe I still do somewhere, the 1972 After Dark magazine that Casey Donovan was on the cover of. Well... Bill Como was the editor of After Dark. And Bill Como I met the first week I was in New York on Central Park West, and we became good friends. So he was very supportive of the movie. And there again, it's a national magazine, not a gay magazine, but it was, you know. Um, but um, he was very supportive. And he knew Cal, Casey Donovan. So we got a lot of press from him. And because of that, then we got other publications, and then the gay press started, you know, really pushing it. And um, it was done right, and it happened the way we wanted it to happen. One of the things that might surprise listeners is the link between your films and the chorus line. Michael Bennett was with Marvin, my manager, who became my partner in the movies. Michael had done a lot of Broadway shows, but didn't have any money. You don't make money on a Broadway show until it pays back its investment. 
all Michael's shows were critically successful, but they never paid back the investment. Follies was a flop financially. Company flop financially. So Michael needed money to live on while he worked on a chorus line. So Marvin called me in San Francisco and he said, I need some cash flow. So he said, you've got to make another movie for eight, the 8 millimeter company because so many people all over the United States wanted to see Boys in the Sand because we got such coverage. And we all could only play 10 cities in the United States. So we got the idea of putting it on 8 millimeter and selling the whole movie for $99. And so people in Podunk, Idaho, and people in Florida, people all over the United States, and even the world, could buy the movie and see it. John Gielgud came to our office and picked up his own personal copy <laughs> so he could take it back to England. That was a great, great moneymaker for us. That made more money than the actual theater. So he said, we need to make another movie for the 8mm because I need the cash flow. So I made moving and uh, right after I moved out to San Francisco, and Peter and I had broken up, and he said, I'll do one more movie for you, which he did in moving. And I made it, and it was so good that we decided to put a score to it and put it into theaters as well. And we did. But the reason I had to make that movie was I had to support Michael Bennett for a year while he was developing a chorus line. So... Michael even made jokes about it when he did interviews and everything, so he was not ashamed of the fact that porno money went into a chorus line. You also knew Harvey Milk. I knew Harvey in New York before he ever went to California, and when we moved out there, we stopped by Castro Camera, which Harvey had opened, to see Harvey and said, we're looking for a apartment. you have any ideas? He said, yeah, there's one right across the street. And we went over. I didn't know what the Castro was, believe it or not. And it was right on Castro Street, right up the hill from the Castro Theater, right in the heart of Gatum. And uh, we rented the apartment there, which I use in the movie, Moving. And um, Harvey even developed the stills for my movies. You couldn't give them to Kodak because you wouldn't get them back. So I took them to Harvey, and Harvey would develop them and give them back to me. So Harvey knew uh, he'd seen the movies and respected what I'd done and sort of looked at me as a gay pioneer as well. And, uh, in fact, the night that the Anita Bryant thing happened and everyone met on the Castro, we were sitting in the back of one of the stores, all in this garden, and I was sitting next to Harvey, and he leaned over and he said, this is a bad time, and we have to be careful, you and I, because we're out there. And then I realized it's true. We were the most well-known gay people in San Francisco. And he said, we have to be very careful. And I never forgot that especially after he was shot. And I was so done in by it, I didn't leave my apartment for three days. I just sat there and mourned. Any life lessons you can share? What I always did in my life was live in the moment and take advantage of everything that's there that you can use to accomplish whatever you have in your head at that moment. This has been a conversation with Wakefield Poole, a documentary about Wake, I Always Said Yes, The Many Lies of Wakefield Poole, from writer-director-producer Jim Kuszynski, is available on both DVD and VOD. Find more info at IAlwaysSaidYes.com. This is Steve Pry. Thanks for listening. Here I am, all alone and all dressed up too.
I didn't know anything about Boys in the Sand. I mean, I love the title, for one. Uh, but I love how he was taking gay visibility from the shadows into the mainstream. Uh, I think it's remarkable that Wakefield and his theatrical business manager, Marvin, produced the full-length feature on a credit card. <laughs> that was the big takeaway for me, too, was visibility and moving things into the mainstream and putting it out there. We talk all the time about how important representation is. And here's an example of that, putting things that were cast in the dark into the light. Yeah, and he treated his subject matter and his actors, everything about that process, with the same respect as you would any feature film that you were directing and producing. And it finished, or it's, it held the spot at 48 out of 50 of the number one uh, movies of that time. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Edna St. Vincent Millay's Step, coming up now on The Rainbow Minute. On July 10, 1981, the U.S. Postal Service issued an 18-cent commemorative stamp honoring poet Edna St. Vincent Millay. The first day issue took place in Austerlitz, New York, where Millay's farmstead, Steepletop, is located. The image of Millay on the stamp, designed by Glenora Case Richards, was painted on a piece of old ivory and then mounted in a gold frame. Issued as part of the American Poet Literary Arts series, it was printed in panes of 50 stamps. Malay was the first woman to win the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry in 1923. Openly bisexual, Malay celebrated the bohemian lifestyle she led in Greenwich Village in the early 1920s. Her later works made a big shift with descriptions of free and cavalier female sexuality. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Sodan Abule, in Philadelphia. Hi, I'm Chaz Bono, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out loud and proud since 1974. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And I'm Chloe Corcoran. Kevin Spiritus is perhaps best known for his roles on the soap opera Days of Our Lives and One Life to Live. On stage, he's gone from singing and dancing in a Las Vegas production of Hairspray to Broadway, where he was Hugh Jackman's standby in The Boy from Oz. And these days, he's a co-producer and co-writer and star of the Emmy Award-winning Amazon series, After Forever, that tackles loss and love for a gay man over 40. Within our ever-expanding LGBTQI community, there are many heartfelt, challenging, intriguing, and entertaining stories to tell. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and this is Storytellers. Emmy Award-winning digital drama series After Forever returns for season two. And in studio today, we have the series co-creator, star, and executive producer, Kevin Spiritus. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Your creative life has taken you to six slasher film sequels, Broadway, daytime television, concerts, and now the online world of digital drama series with After Forever. What led you down this new path as a series co-creator? You are kind of part of that reason why. I was living in New York, and Patricia Darbo, who was my leading lady on Days of Our Lives, called me up one day and said, Get a nice suit. We're going to take you to the ISA Awards. I didn't know what we were going to, but I remember that's the first time I ever saw all this digital content that was being presented. And the two that stuck out were Hustling, that Sebastian Lacoste had created, and Pretty. I just went, wow. 
I got to do something like this. I got to create something, something real, something personal to me. Thanks to Patrika Darbo. Well, hands up to Patrika Darbo. Yes. I remember rushing up to Sebastian because going, hustling. It's amazing. You're, you're fantastic. I want to work with you. And he put me onto the second season and the third season of Hustling. And then your executive producer, Steve Silverman, Steve Silverman and Michael Caruso created Winterthorn. And in 2014, I crossed paths with Michael Slade in the New York gym. And he said, are you Kevin Spiritus? I think I used to write for you when you were on Days of Our Lives. And that was the beginning of our conversation about creating a show together. Season one has been received quite well. Would you like to share the success of that? After Forever, the digital series now on Amazon in its first season won five Emmy Awards. Erin Cherry won Outstanding Supporting Actress. I won Outstanding Lead Actor. We won Outstanding Writing, Michael Slade and I. Outstanding Director for Jennifer Pepperman. And we also won Outstanding Digital Series. That night, After Forever became the first LGBT-themed drama to ever win five Emmys. And that covers primetime and cable and digital. I just attended the season two premiere at the Renberg Theater in Hollywood. A little industry screening. Were there any particular challenges in pitching this series? Michael Slade and I struck up this conversation about, you know, what each of us were doing at this time. We didn't know each other. I wanted to create a story about gay men my age. I was starting to feel that it didn't matter what we talked about as long as it was true. You know, being a leading man, you don't talk about your sexuality, you don't talk about your life, you just be what the part is. I was single at the time, and I wanted to create a series about dating in 2014, the year we met. And he had wanted to also write a story about men over 40 as well, and he had just lost his partner a couple years prior. What was beautiful was is he was ready to start to creatively work through some of that. And it's kind of our desire to tell stories about who we are and who we know and who we are in this world. Gay men over 40 are really kind of off the canvas of creative storytelling. Do we tell it 40 and up or 50 and up? And then it, it really fell into place where this is, I'm 50 at that time-ish. <laughs> I'm 50-ish too. Yeah, we're, we're, <laughs> we're looking good for 50-ish, yeah. I, I hope. But Michael wanted to create this story from a place of healing his experience with, with loss. And his partner, who had passed at that time, had been diagnosed with the same diagnosis that Jason is diagnosed with in the series. And so we used that. And as soon as we kind of found the base of of how we're going to tell why this man is single and why he wants to go out into the world and meet other people and how he's dealing with loss, it just sort of fell into place. Again, Michael and I wanted something that we knew and that was personal to us because we didn't see those men on screen. We didn't see those men on TV. We didn't see those men in theater even. And it's very few and far between. So you either have the hot young 20-year-olds or you've got the old man down the hall with a cat. That was the desire. And once we kind of had that story in place, telling the story with each segment and each episode, and then we wanted to do short form because that's what we were very excited about. Each episode is like a little story in itself, like a little movie. And back to your question about did we have any issues pitching a story like this? Yes, did you? Uh, We did not because we created it ourselves. We didn't have standards and practices down our neck going, you know, you can't do this, you can't say that, and this isn't right. But what we did want to do is tell this story. And because we are self-distributed at this time, we have put it on Amazon ourselves. We are happy to be on Amazon in the USA and the UK, but we're looking for a international distributor to take our story all over the world. Have you personally felt unseen at any time in the LGBTQI plus community? 
it wasn't that it was unaccepting of me. I wasn't accepting of it. So I kept myself out of it for the longest time. I was conditioning my life based on an image and an idea of what was acceptable. So cut to just not giving a flying frick anymore and seeing what was important to me and seeing what was personal to me. And it's very interesting how the roles that I would get cast in along the way were always roles that had something to do with my personal growth. So wherever I was in my life, I could see where my personal growth was being tested or being worked out. And that was what was so exciting to see as the result in the film or the TV or on stage. And then I started to realize, wow, the roles that I really excel at are some of these roles that are, are gay thematic, you know, or the whole piece is gay thematic. We do tell After Forever as a love story. It happens to be about two men, but it's really about loss and our relationship to loss and my character's relationship to loss from personal experience, from loss in my life, from love in my life, that I can channel that into the character, into the piece. And Michael as well. Michael Slade has said that every character he writes is a part of him as well. As our head writer and as our beautiful wordsmith, he just knows it so well. If you ever want to write a show or a play or a series, your secret weapon is Michael Slade. In the community situation, I used to drop into the community when it was comfortable for me, and then I'd pull out. Wait for it. Wait for it. Okay, continue. I used to... Okay, I'm still <laughs> laughing. No, no, with that in mind, let me create a scenario for you. You're driving down Santa yes. Monica Boulevard through Boys Town. And you see all the billboards and you see all the magazines and the bars and all the adverts and whatnot. You get a certain feel about where you yeah. fit within that community. Yeah, I never felt oh, like I fit. Right. So then you drive through your 30s. Then you drive through your 40s. Now you're driving through West Hollywood at 50. Have you ever felt unseen as a gay man in that community? And how does that fit within the world of After Forever? Well, I have to say, have I been seen as a gay man is reflective of how I see the gay world. You know, we have to hold a mirror up to ourselves. I'm not a Friday night, Saturday night bar hopping kind of guy. Loud music and dancing till all hours in the morning. It's never been part of my world. I never felt invited in because I didn't have the desire to be there. However, as I've gotten older, I can appreciate the community that it has created for LGBT plus world. Now, Michael and I are both receiving extraordinary compliments about how the work that we've created has told story about older men who are kind of pushed out of that community. And that's beautiful, and yet it's sad, and it kind of has this bittersweet feeling. I'm glad that people are recognizing themselves in some of the story because it's important. This is Michael Taylor Gray with Storytellers, and you're listening to my interview with Kevin Spiritus, co-creator, executive producer, and star of the digital drama series After Forever. We all belong, and we all should be able to drive up and down any boulevard and just be part of that world. Feeling vibrant and sexual yeah. and alive and all those kinds of feelings. It's a complete picture of who you are as an individual yes. and how that should not fade over time, no. but maintain. I think you're so good at giving that aspect of our lives and our story and telling that part of the story and after forever or portraying men and women above 40 past 50 who were still vibrant, sexual human beings. I was and I always have been extremely attracted to people and the way they tell their stories of success when it comes from a place of their hero's journey, their, their, their darkest night, their, their weaknesses turned into their strengths. I wasn't afraid anymore to talk about myself 
And I expressed that to Michael. The story that we've weaved together and the things that he's created to say, and I'm so blessed. But I feel at the same time, we all have a story to tell, something important to stand behind, and each of our lives has meaning. Why not stand in that? If your 50-something self yeah. could talk to your 20-something self, yeah. what advice would you give that young right. man? Not unlike Brian, my character in After Forever, conjures up Jason, his deceased husband. There are times when that kid, that 20-year-old something, that 30-year-old something, or even that teen is yelling and screaming so loud that I have to pay attention to him. When you go through the challenges of raising money or meeting a deadline, whatever the thing is that is worrying you, I have to go back to that younger self and remind myself that guy has no fear. That younger kid had just nothing but excitement and optimism and love and want of playing. That younger self, if I stop and slow myself down sometimes, I can hear him reaching out to me. He is still present. If I would talk to that teenager or a kid in his 20s who was so afraid to be himself, that I would have never, ever believed that we could do this. I would have never believed that I could stand in my, my truth and say, thank you for your acknowledgement and thank you for being able to let us tell a story like this. And that's what warms my heart about after forever more than anything. You have such a vibrant, positive, can-do spirit. Were there any unfamiliar challenges that you faced with creating and producing After Forever? Back in 2009, I moved to New York, and I had never lived in New York for any amount of time over a year. In 2009, I moved there, and that was the seven and a half years in which I stepped into producing on Broadway and meeting an incredible circle of creative producers and financial producers. I took that journey along with my performing and continuing to act. And by the time I had met Michael in the gym that day, I felt it was time to take what I had learned, hopefully what I learned, and use it for something that I was creatively arrested by. And that's my protocol to getting involved with any project is what is arresting about it? Is it the subject matter? Is it the people I want to work with? Or is there a part for me that speaks to me and I have to speak it? And when Michael and I started talking, I just knew this was right. This show had to be born. I just went to people and said, we're going to do a little reading. We'd like you to come. That way you could see what it's about. And people were reacting and responding to it so beautifully. I never once asked them to invest in the project. What I realized is they were investing in my vision of this project. That's how Michael and I kind of went to people and kind of created that connection of raising money. We had people who invested, we had people who donated, and then we had people who donated sets and offices and restaurants and their home. Laura Barquette, who is an executive producer on the series, she has this beautiful five-story townhouse on the Upper East Side in New York, and she gifted us this home to use. I call it the Barquette Studios. When did the title After Forever come to light? I was sitting in Michael's apartment. He wanted to make this character of Brian, my role, very real. And he felt that there had to be something, there had to be a concrete floor for him to stand on of why he was single. He asked me if I was single or involved, and I said, I'm single at the time. And I asked him if he was, and he said he had just lost his partner. And after I asked him how it happened, I said, do you still talk to him? And he had responded, yeah, I do. And I said, if you would be willing to use something like that, if it was comfortable for you to use that part of the story or that diagnosis or something is the reason Brian's single and Jason being gone, maybe we could talk to Jason. It's not reinventing the wheel, but it is a way of telling the story. So we have reality, we have flashbacks, and then we have Brian conjuring Jason up. 
we just sort of both came up with it together. You think you have happily ever after. No matter what happens when you lose somebody, you will never be done with that relationship. You'll never be done with that love. As long as you keep that person in your heart, their life is still with you. And that organic process mm-hmm. that resulted in this wonderful title for the show also led to a beautiful theme song. Oh. It's gorgeous. Craig De Silva is a good old friend of mine, great songwriter, and he does a lot of theme music for other projects. And I asked Michael if I could just approach him and see what he thought about maybe writing a song. I came to Los Angeles in 1982, and the wave of young men that I knew who I lost through the AIDS epidemic in the theatrical community, and it was devastating to me. And Craig was there at that time as well. We had mutual friends who we lost, and he was very connected to the idea. He read the script, and he said, I would love to do this. And he came up with this incredible song called My Forever. only play it once all the way through in each season. Who sings this song? Leo Nicole. It's the human story of loss and love that we can all relate to, to some degree. Everybody, you're going to deal with loss. We can't get out of this game without it. There's no handbook. I'm not saying we do it the best. And I think second season, we've tried to show that the relationship between Brian and Jason was not this perfect, holier-than-thou relationship. There's some ups and downs. Where do we find you on social media? KevinSpiritus.com, AfterForeverTheSeries.com. Instagram is AfterForeverTheSeries, and Twitter is AFTheSeries. Anywhere you Google, AfterForeverTheSeries. And Kevin Spiritus, K-E-V-I-N-S-P-I-R-T-A-S.com. You've been listening to Storytellers. What's your story? I want to personally thank Kevin Spiritus and Michael Slade for the inclusiveness, visibility, and authenticity of After Forever, and for celebrating the vibrant sexuality of 40-somethings, 50-somethings, and beyond. It's fantastic to see, and one of the things I really picked up from this interview was the healing through art, and also, the again, the importance of stories and representation and visibility. We talk a lot about representation, even in this show, and it's nice to see something different aside from what primetime TV has really shown, which is that maybe 18 to 25 gay white male intersection into something different, that there is life after 25. We're here. Get used to it. There is still a few minutes left, enough time for a last word. And tonight, that's an audio essay from Charlie Bauer called Pink Freud. As you know, I'm a keen fan of all the new gay identifications within the media. We're swamped in movies and series about gay men all of a sudden. Okay, they tend to be about the usual, the expectation, the disappointment, the hurt and the baggage involved in a relationship. Yes, they're all about gay men shagging like rabbits and taking drugs. What they continually raise for me is the freaky reasoning within the emotional connections we forge as we head through our lives as queer people. I can almost hear the screams, what's with all this goddamn romance being bandied about? Move on, I hear you holler. It's only sex. But whatever you do, just don't mention the other L word, love. 
To get to the bottom of this, I have to re-emphasize how growing up emotionally as a homo within a straight world has been an impossible task. It stems from some kind of fear that occurs within us when that big difference, i.e. discovering ourselves to be other, sinks in when we're still children. It's as if, from this point on, that self-imposed closet results in us remaining infantile in our emotional measuring. And when we tether that big difference onto the usual whammy of childhood abandonment regarding the love and acceptance of our parents, all queer hell breaks loose. I know, it's Pink Freud, but there we go. It's also been suggested that we somehow emotionally freeze at this point in our childhood, a point where, in our unformed kiddie brains, we no longer feel free to love unconditionally. As a result, we continue onwards through life, understanding less, and finding it all unfulfilling as we attempt to live within the constant plot of the heterosexual world. You still keeping up? Good. Nowadays, gayers can marry, get pensions and the rest, but that's only really a fiscal conformity. It's still only a compromise and certainly not the end result of any struggle for the freedom to love. Why? Because homosexuals are still not allowed to love in a heterosexual world, the world which is still naturally peopled by the people who bring forth the smaller gay and straight people. Apparently, without love, there may be no people. Then, maybe the saddest thing is that we may never truly be able to experience love in the same way as we did before our big difference kicked in. Maybe it's all about us homos mourning that parental love forever by realising our inability to have replacement children ourselves. Maybe it is about heterosexual conformity after all. Perhaps even being a gay parent is not the normalising measure it was once rumoured to be. But it's the standards that we gayers tally ourselves to within all this emotional hand-rearing that is particularly harsh. All those emotional rules invented by ourselves when we were unformed, self-regulating children have a tendency to stay in place forever. These are the unfortunate byproducts of the absence of any nurturing or early role models for our type of emotional needs. Brought about because gay emotional needs are still taboo and largely invisible within a heterosexual society. Therefore, any emotional codes we try to take with us into adulthood are set to fail and burn like embers throughout the course of our own lifetime. Enough already? Okay, last part. When we get to the teenage baby-making age, we more often than not forget about the whole thing by learning to drink, take drugs, or to socially reinvent ourselves away from the aloneness we have come to recognise as being gay. Unnaturally, and I mean unlike heterosexuals, our potential relationships and friendships are not forged using the same codes as the world at large, i.e. sex partners as potential baby makers or friends as support networks for us as parents. Only then do some of us move on to some form of queer culture, to those places where we can kiss each other in public. The other side of this strange old coin is that everything we witness from the moment of our births, every exchange and dream we've ever been sold emanates from the firm and permanent structure of a heterosexual society. So, what is seen to have become normal gay behaviour, like the flat screen TV and the Prius, is based instead on that heterosexual model which, as I've just mentioned, is defined as shagging, having children and raising them to have their own. Don't forget this model isn't flawed. Heterosexuality works. And it's been proven. Just look in the mirror. 
Sure, we homos can have IVF and hit the turkey basters as many times as we desire. We too could breed legions of sexual indeterminates. But understand this, we will never stand close to the heterosexual paradigm unless we are first allowed to love without restriction. Pink Freud, one of the best names ever. I agree. Right? Uh, The freedom to love in a predominantly heterosexual world. Gay emotional needs. You know, those are things that really stuck out to me in this piece. But one one that really hit home more than any of that was loving without restriction. Agreed. And I was really struck by how often he talked about the possibility of getting stunted in some of this emotional development because we don't fit into the world that we see around us and we may not have the role models and we're getting sensationalized views of the sexual parts of our lives but not the emotional investment not the loving and not the humanity of our lives i'll role model for you well that's the end of our show we know you have choices on your radio dial and appreciate you spending time with us thank you our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, Rainbow Minute producers Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. If you're a web designer, social media expert, or just interested in LGBTQI community affairs and would like to volunteer with IMRU, we'd love to have you. Please email volunteer at imruradio.org. A little reminder... You can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. And you can also listen to our podcast, where we'll start presenting longer interviews and content too bodacious to broadcast. And if you want to see us, be sure to check out our promos on IMRU Radio Podcast on YouTube. Good night. Good night.